Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast. This is a weekly interview show that is all about art, craft, and creativity. I produce it in the hope that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. So let's get to it, folks. It's time to craft sanity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 61 of the Craft Sanity Podcast. My apologies for being away for so long. I haven't been able to keep up my weekly schedule lately, but I have a decent reason. I've been very busy working on a crafty work project, and I'm going to save the details of what exactly I've been up to for after the show, but you're invited to stick around for that if you want to know more. Thanks to all of you for being patient. I really do appreciate that. And now for the main event. Today's guest is Sabrina Geschwantner. She's the author of a fantastic book that just came out last month. Her book's called Knit Knit, Profiles Plus Projects from Knitting's New Wave. And it's a wonderful collection of profiles of 27 interesting knitters, some you've surely heard of and others you can't believe you didn't know about. Sabrina Thirty is a New York City artist and woman of many mediums. She works in film, video, photography, performance, sewing, crochet, and knitting. She's a BA from Brown University and an MFA from Bard College and has exhibited her work at many museums and galleries. However, the reason her name is familiar to many of us crafty types is because she is the esteemed creator of Knit Knit, that limited edition arts journal that has been documenting the intersection of fine art and handcraft since Sabrina distributed the first photocopied booklets with spray-painted fabric covers in 2002. On this episode of Craft Sanity, you're going to hear the story of how Sabrina landed a book deal that would amount to a fantastic global knitting adventure. Stick around after the interview to hear how you can get into the drawing for a free copy of Knit Knit and download the pattern for Lisa Ann Arabach's Body Count Mittens. Grab a project and settle in. Here we go. Today I'm really pleased to have Sabrina Geschwantner, the author of the fabulous book Knit Knit. It's a pleasure to speak with you because I really... Like I said, I, I had mentioned that I think your book isn't just great. I think it's off the charts great. And we'll eventually wind the conversation back around to your book. But let's just start out with the question that I always start with. And I always want to know how people got into, you know, felt, you know, first felt that pull toward art and craft. So I'll kind of let you, you start where you want to start. Where does the story start for you? Well, thank you for appreciating the book. I'm really happy that it's out the world and has been really, you know, because there's such a big lead time between when you finish a book and when it gets printed, and then even after when it, after it gets printed, my book was printed in China, so it was on a slow boat from China for like two months, and then from the warehouse it gets sent out to different distributors, so there's quite a long lead time from when you hand in your manuscript, and then when you're, after that, revising, and after that, dealing with the design, and then finally your hands are out of it, it takes like another gosh, eight months or something until you see it, and then another month or two until other people see it. So it's so exciting to be in this time period where the book has just come out and I'm starting to get responses from people. But backing up, I think that um, it really started when I was a kid, and I grew up in Virginia. My mom is an artist and a writer, and my dad is a publisher, and together my parents started a magazine um, about sales 
salespeople, sales professionals, managers, marketing managers. And my dad um, is the publisher. My mom has been the editor-in-chief, and they started it together when I was, maybe I was, I don't know how old I was, a couple years old, but my mom, concurrent to that, was a painter. And we, my dad's Austrian, so I'm half Austrian. But my, my parents met in Avion, France, where the water comes from. My mom's American. They met in France. They decided to get married on their first date, and they got married two weeks later, and that was my dad's first time in America. And subsequently, they lived in Paris. Um, wait a minute. Wait a minute. They yeah. got married. They decided to get married on their first date. Yeah, they did. Wow. Yeah. And they've been married how long now? They've been married for thirty-five years. Wow. That's yeah. that's pretty fantastic. I know it's pretty inspiring. Yeah. So they lived in France when they were first married, and they wanted to move back to the states. And the company my dad was working for had a branch in America, so he got them to transfer him. Jersey, and then, sub- then subsequently they transitioned to Virginia, and so my parents ended up in Virginia, and um, my dad started this business there, and they stayed. I grew up in Fredericksburg, which is, has become a larger town, but when I was there, was smaller, more rural than it is now. It's about an hour south of D.C., and um, it's, very, it's, a, it's a historic Civil War town. I mean, there's a lot of um, reenactment activity and a lot of handcrafts, actually. And a lot of the handcrafts is centered around reenactment and Civil War memorabilia mm-hmm. and this kind, of act, this kind of stuff. There's also some ceramics and basket weaving. My immediate family kind of didn't fit in with the rest of the sort of community there who were sort of generations and generations of Civil War uh, reenactors. <laughs> and... Um, we're all like Christian or Baptist, Catholic, and my mom's family's Jewish. My dad's uh, Austrian and has this accent. And my mom was doing paintings when I was young, like nude women. And, and I just always had this feeling like we didn't totally fit in. And growing up there, I kind of couldn't wait to leave. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I ended up going to a boarding school, a Quaker boarding school in Pennsylvania, and then um, ended up in Providence for college. And it, funny, it wasn't until my last semester of school, I, it was sort of during high school that I decided I was really interested in filmmaking and in art, and then um, ended up at Brown studying semiotics. Um, I got my undergraduate degree in semiotics and art, and that was the way I was able to take filmmaking. At Brown, you couldn't even pick up any kind of recording device, meaning like video or film camera, until you had a certain amount of uh, art theory. So I ended up doing this intense theory degree and studying independent avant-garde film and filmmaking. And my last semester of school, I had finished my thesis film. I'd done all the credits I needed to do to graduate. I was taking independent study. I was PA in a film class. And I was living with three Rizzi students. One was a painter and two were textile students. And we lived in this very <laughs> uh, poorly insulated apartment in Providence, and we would all hang out in the kitchen and knit in the winter. And so through them, I got really into knitting. And my mom had taught me, I'd grown up in this really creative household where my sisters and I did a zine together, and we were always like drawing. We had a whole, we had a basement that was kind of our dedicated art-making space with like easels and these blocks that were covered in carpet that my mom had designed and constructed that we played in. And 
it was like we were always making plays or drawing, painting, arguing, <laughs> the creative art of arguing with your siblings, and um, all kinds of like whatever, music, whatever, we were always making something together. And my mom had taught me to crochet when I was like eight or something, and um, so handcraft was a small part of that creative activity when I was young, but it wasn't until this, my last semester of school, I think it was in 99, 99 to 2000, that I got interested in handcraft again through these textile students and hanging out in this warm basement in a cold apartment in Providence. And <laughs> so I think it was around then that these kind of this, um, these two sides, this art, this fine art background that I had through my mom and actually also through my grandmother who was a painter. My grandparents, these were my mother's parents, were art collectors and so I spent time with them going to museums and more. Everything I knew about modern and modern art, I did learn from my grandparents, you know, just hanging out with them, going on vacations with them and reading their books and so that side of me, which I sort of further developed in school through the theory classes that I was taking and also through filmmaking, sort of met up with this, what I think of as um, just the kind of immediate pleasurable activity of working in just like the slow pace of handcraft that I had done a little bit of when I was young, but also been exposed to living in this historic southern Civil War town, which was you know, which really prided itself. I mean, the, the art, anything artistic in that town was centered on handcraft or, like I said, were a couple one enactments, which I can't still totally get with. But, um, <laughs> you know, I sort of like these different pieces of my family history and my um, local history and then my own sort of pre-adult or burgeoning adult artistic um, interests started coming together. Well, that's a really interesting background, too, and how all those things kind of blend and what eventually ended up you ended up doing. That's really interesting, your your whole background. Um, what was boarding school like? Oh, it was not great. No. My best school experience was at Brown. I yeah. really loved Providence. I loved the access I had to RISD. I loved the um, city of Providence. It's a small city, but there's so much creative activity happening there. A lot of... Um, People who go to Brown or RISD end up either finishing those schools or dropping out, end up staying there. And then there's just, you know, people who've grown up there moved there because it's an exciting city. It was, it was small, but there was a lot happening and just a lot of really amazingly talented artists there. So that was really my best. And I just, at, at Brown, you could take whatever classes you wanted. There's no core curriculum. There's a certain amount of classes you have to take, but I didn't have to study math. I don't like, and I could just really immerse myself. I had some wonderful teachers. It was just a great experience. There was boarding school. Um, I mean, I admire the Quaker uh, spiritual, religious, and like, community ethic, and I'm glad I had exposure to that, and it was a really diverse community, much, much, much more diverse than um, anything I'd known in Virginia, and that was wonderful, but being, I wouldn't send my kids I, I, I don't, I don't like resent my parents for doing that because that was kind of in their culture. My dad actually moved out of home when he was around 15. And my mother had gone to the boarding school and my aunt, uncle, and my cousins. And so it was sort of this family tradition. But it's hard, I think, for teachers 
to also be your surrogate family and parents. Yeah, that is a lot of uh, and it's, big yeah. job for them. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I'm just intrigued because, you know, I, I left home when I was uh, until, you know, 18, went to college. Um, yeah. So, and I, I almost felt like I wasn't quite ready then. <laughs> yeah. There's some days and I'm like, man, did I leave too early? But, um, but yeah, to leave at 15 or 16, that would be harder. Four, I think 14. Oh, 40 for, for freshman year? Yeah. 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 Well. But, you know, in many ways I was glad to get out of Virginia. So. Did your sisters go too? My twin sister did go to the same school. Um, and. We kind of went in and out of friendship during that period. We're really close now, but I think it was hard on our relationship. And my younger sister went to Exeter, which is another boarding school. That's a little more, it's like very prestigious academically and further north. Mm -hmm. And which she really loved. So my, my school was a little more like loosey-goosey and kind of very liberal. Um, and I don't know. The academics were good, but Exeter is where my younger sister went is, is much more, for a lot of, it's like, it's like the Harvard of boarding school. Those like really serious academia. Well, it sounds like your family, you guys are, uh, you know, academic powerhouses here with, um, no, you're no, no, no. well, my, I mean, no, I mean, parents. names yeah, like my, Brown and Bard, <laughs> you know, no, I'm impressed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> my mother, my mother dropped out of college. She did one semester of school and she, she always loves to say that it was during her was an English class who was taking her to write a persuasive essay, and she wrote an essay about how she didn't, why all the reasons she didn't need college, she handed in and dropped out that day. And that was it. Wow. And my dad put himself through night school, like a local business school at night in, uh -huh. in Salzburg. So I, my grandfather had a, a master's degree, and my twin sister getting her MFA in creative writing at the moment, but there's not a lot of or even college degrees in my family. So. Well, it sounds like in your family. But everyone's smart. Yeah, well, it sounds like you guys are all <laughs> smart people, and uh, just, I mean, just hearing, you know, about your, educate, your art, education in art, like, from your grandparents, I mean, that's, that's the best way to learn it, too, to actually yeah. be looking at the paintings, looking at the art, and yeah. instead of trying to learn it out of a book, and yeah. so, so that's a great substitute for any college class, actually, but, um, but yeah, so it sounds like you have a really interesting, just upbringing and, and, and background in art, and so it's no wonder that you ended up um, becoming absorbed in it, you know, yourself. Um, and um, so after after college, I know um, looking at your bi biography that's on your website and just reading some in your book, um, it sounds like, you know, you're one of those folks who never really set out to make a name for yourself in the knitting world. I mean, that wasn't really the scripted <laughs> plan at all. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> um, so can you talk about what happened, you know, after college, um, you know, at that point when all of us are kind of like, now what? When you look yeah. at your you look at your reflection in the mirror and you're like, okay, I've done this thing that I you know yeah, I graduated and now what do I do? You know. Yeah, well, it really came out of this these sort of knitting crocheting sessions that I had with my roommate in Providence, where I just you know was still doing all the theory reading and I would take breaks from the theory reading to sit and knit, and it sort of became this all encompassing practice to do my theory reading and to stop and do knitting, and they were like these perfectly complementary activities, both of which I really loved. And I was just so um, drawn to the meditative aspects of, um, you know, making repetitive motions with my hands and to working directly with color and texture. And everything that I made at that period um, was 
totally intuitive, and it was just for the pleasure of making it. And there was no design process. Like, I literally just pick up some yarn and start going and then just see where it took me. And I started wearing – I mostly made clothes. Um, and so I started wearing the clothes that I was making, um, and a couple of the students in the film class at Brown, for which I was a teaching assistant, wanted to buy or trade me the clothes. So I started trading and selling these clothes in Providence, and then a store boutique owner in New York saw one of the people wearing them. She got in touch with me. She wanted to buy them. And then I started selling these just all like one-of-a-kind, mostly accessories like hats and scarves and mittens and vests and um, things like that to her. And then as I graduated, I moved to New York and started selling to some other boutiques and eventually at some, and mostly downtown, you know, like mm-hmm. um, Rosita, Soho, kind of stores, and eventually sold some things at Fendel's, which fancy store on Fifth Avenue. And so that was um, one of the ways that I earned money when I first moved to New York. I also worked for my mentor, Leslie Thornton, a filmmaker, and her husband, an artist, on summer as a studio assistant for them, and then took another job working for Sarah B, who's uh, an installation artist sculptor. So I kind of had these like freelance jobs, and I would make some money making clothes, and I did that for a while, like a year or two outside of school, and um, I had another job where I was the uh, weekend manager at the Museum of the Moving Image, um, and I would sort of manage the screenings that we had, and I had a lot of time in between screenings to like sit and man and crochet and talk to like the cineasts, these sort of dedicated film um, buffs who would come very punctually to all of the screenings. And so um, all of that was, it was a really great transition from school to New York. And New York, it takes a while to settle. So I was doing all these things, and that went on for a while, and I started realizing that I missed making films and making art. And I was wondering, well, how do I incorporate this? I don't want to be a clothing designer. That's another thing I realized. I really love making these things. But in order to make it a profession, I was either going to have to hire people to help me, Mm -hmm. or I was going to have to send the the work somewhere to get made. And I was like, I'm not really interested in doing that. That's not really where I want to go. I really miss making fine art. And um, so I started making art projects again, and, and... they were these really clunky pieces where I was like still interested in working with time-based media, you know, like video and film, and wanting to somehow incorporate this tactile sensibility that I enjoyed so much through the handcraft. And while I was trying to figure that out, I started um, getting really excited by um, the work made by some of my friends who hadn't, like me, hadn't really studied handcraft, studied other artistic disciplines. Mm-hmm. Who were really primarily like sculptors or drummers or you know um, filmmakers, and were like getting really into handcraft. And so I, um, I've told this story a couple of times. I don't want to repeat myself too much, but I was riding my bike home from Prospect Park one day, and I was like, "Well, I'm just going to make a zine. I'm going to interview these friends, and it's going to be called Knit Knit, and it's going to be awesome. I'm so excited about this." So I, I did that. I interviewed my friend Jim Drain, who's also in the book, um, who, like me, had like come to knitting from the other degree in sculpture from RISD, mm-hmm. and then my friend Jamie Peterson, who's in a band, studied filmmaking, but also was a musician, and 
head and started crocheting. And then I started telling other friends about it, like, I'm making these jeans, it's going to be awesome, just call it knit. And a friend, Oliver, said, well, oh, you know Kelly Janoff? She's a friend of mine. She just started this thing called the Church of Craft. And I was like, what's that? So we went to Church of Craft meeting, and Oliver interviewed Kelly for Knit Knit One. And then another friend who's an artist, Peter Coffin, told me about, do you know my friend Rebecca Bond's work? She makes these awesome conceptual cozies, bands <laughs> and pipes and flipped over tables, and she's awesome. So I got to touch her, some images. And so that's how Knit Knit was born. And it was really born out of something that it was like a personal desire to sort of figure out, like, what is this territory? Like, who's doing interesting work? Like, what is this about? How can I create um, a community? It wasn't even, I mean, in retrospect, it was, I, it was motivated by this desire to create a community, but that wasn't something I had articulated. I was just, like, purely super, super excited about this idea that one could work as an artist with textile-based materials using handcraft processes, thinking about the traditions of handcraft, and that there could be some way that you could do both and you wouldn't have to choose. So it was never really about, you know, trying to distinguish one from the other, but just figuring out what the intersections of the two were. And, you know, I think it also came from um, a desire to start to create a conversation and a text around these things, you know, that, that comes out of my know, background and reading theory. And it never really had too much theory in it, but it was always meant to start a dialogue through print. And it really took off, too. I mean, because yeah, you can't even, fun. I mean, it, it sold really out, fun. you know? <laughs> yeah, no, it was fun. I mean, and always immediately I thought, well, I want this. My dream for this is for it to get distributed in, you know, art bookstores, but also in yarn stores and clothing stores. Like, everywhere I love, everywhere that has stuff that's inspiring to me, I want this to exist in all of these places, and I want all of all of these different kinds of audiences to be looking at it. And the way it was fun for me to make was was through producing it in like a handcraft type fashion and through collaboration with other people. So even the first one, although I did the layout myself and I did the you know minute one had these spray painted covers that I did on different pieces of fabric lying around the studio. You know that. I been collecting for years, and you know, each issue is bound by sewing machine and specialized sewing machine. And I did most of the work myself, even though, you know, like um, I mentioned, Oliver did an interview with Callie Janoff for it, and then Rebecca sent me these images. So the first one, I really had a lot to do with the production of it. But since then, um, you know, different artists have done limited edition, handmade, you know, either crocheted or laser cut belted covers for, and I've collaborated with different designers and also um, different printers on each of the issues. And then slowly it just sort of grew. I mean, I never, I never, at a certain point I thought, oh, it would be great to do a book, but um, I never anticipated doing a book or I never anticipated how widely the distribution, um, how wide the distribution would get more. So what is your distribution now for your, for NetNet? That's a good question. Okay, the past two issues, issue seven and six, before I've done them, I've said I'm not doing any more. So, really? <laughs> I don't know. And I've, I've, my my fiancé teases me because he says, oh, you say that after each issue. You never need to do it again. And then you do. So I don't know. But I'm kind of in that place again where I'm like, oh. Because the distribution is actually the most work and the least fun at this mm -hmm. point because it's 
so big. I mean, I've the most I've printed has been a thousand copies, and then with the limited edition covers, I've done anywhere from one to three hundred. So limited edition covers go in like a week; they're gone. That's it. They're like super fast, and then I, for years afterwards, I get emails. So I want a limited edition cover, you know. And the um, the thou, you know, the rest that don't have the special edition covers. Those also go in like a month or two. It's pretty fast. Wow. The, the I don't like to say no to anybody, and I handle all the distribution myself, which is hard to communicate with, you know, like all these store owners and buyers across the U.S., including like Alaska. Yeah. And then, you know, internationally it's sold in Ireland, France, Australia, New Zealand. Wow. It's really gotten out there. So um, that's, and like I don't, you know, keeping the spreadsheets and dealing with who's paid and who hasn't paid. And then I started selling them through PayPal on my site and just all the shipping. I don't know. I, I'm not. Well, it's the really business excited. side. It's a business. I know with me, it's like I. I don't even want to turn Craftsanity into like a business because I, I hate all the business stuff. You know yeah. what I mean? But it, and I'll do the I do the same thing where I'm like, okay, I don't think I can do this anymore. Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, it, it really it's kind of yeah, it, it really you know, and taking ads to pay for it and all of that stuff. It is a business. Yeah. And I also, in addition to doing that net and to writing, I mean, now I've written a book and I've been writing for different textile knitting magazines like Rowan and fiber arts and yarn market news. In addition to that, I also make and show my own artwork, so I have a lot going on. So it's always a matter of... Well, that's the, why Knitnet has come out so infrequently, because it's like, when can I find time to make it and then distribute it? So, of all these things you do, I mean, is yeah. there anything that you, you really enjoy the most? Um, well, I love, I love making things, so... You know, and the artwork that I make, which is what I would, which I spend about half of my time doing, which I'd like to move a little bit more more of my time doing, um, is really a focus for me. But producing Knit Knit is, I think, a form of art making and conversing with people around it. And my artwork, you know, I'm really interested in collaboration and inviting participation. And um, Knit Knit has, in many ways, a lot of the goals that I have for my art practice. So I, I really see all of these other activities I do, like writing and curating, because for each issue, each time an, an, an issue of Knit has come out, I've done an event at some venue, if that's like a museum or a gallery or a bookstore, a yarn store, whatever, that has turned into some kind of form of production too. So mm -hmm. I just see it all being part of my art practice, and I really love making things. You know, I work with film and video and and knitting and recently embroidery and crocheting and sewing in my work and then, you know, publishing and producing knit knit and talking to people and editing and writing. To me, that's part of the art practice. Well, I'm glad you didn't pick just one thing because people have gotten after me. <laughs> people have gotten after me and said, you know, can you just do one thing? You know, and I'm like, no, I really actually can't. You know, I, I do all these things. And it sounds like that's the way you're, you're happiest doing. I mean, it's like a full... It's just so many different things, and, you know, well, I'm sure you're pressed for time at <laughs> many points in your life. Yeah. You know, it sounds like you're you're quite pleased to have all these things that you can do. So let's talk about your art a little bit, because okay. I know people in the art and craft world know you for Knit Knit, because yeah. it's that um, coveted art journal that those of us who are too slow off the blocks have a hard time getting our hands on. <laughs> but, yeah, I, wait, I should mention 
know that I'm really proud that it's in um, the Harvard Harvard University's Fine Arts Library at the Fogger Museum. So anybody, you don't have to go to Harvard. The, the full collection of Minute 1 through 7 with the limited edition covers are all housed there. Oh, that's awesome. Perpetuity. Yeah. And, oh, God, the librarians are amazing and dropping off the Minute entries that we found was like one of the best experiences of my life. And anyone can just make an appointment to go read them there. And then most, I think almost all of them, if not all of them, are also at the ITRC in Portland, Oregon, which is the independent publishing resource center. We're also you can just make an appointment to go look at it and see in our collection. So those are two ways that people can, if they're in or near or traveling to those areas, Portland or Cambridge, they can read and touch the knit And get their photo um, taken with the whole collection. Yeah, you know? I don't think they allow photography. <laughs> you might have to Maybe make special arrangements. <laughs> <laughs> so did you do Maybe donate them photo. or did they purchase, were these purchased for the? Um, the IPRC, I just donated each issue as they've come out and uh, Harvard that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's quite a, a nod to you, too, to have oh, hardware so, purchase your, yeah. your... That's awesome. Yeah, Well, congratulations on that. Thank that's you. fantastic. Yeah, and then the contents of issue one are online and excerpts of issue two. And I think um, I need to make it a priority to put excerpts, like uh, either excerpts or scan the contents. Because am I correct yeah. that you cannot, you can't buy those now? I mean, they're sold out. Yeah, there are a few. I mean, occasionally on eBay they come up. Okay. Um, and I think that... I know that um, on the Microval web store and at the Super Crafty web store, they have a few issues of issue seven without custom slots. So okay. There are a couple up out there still, but most of the rest are gone. Yeah. Well, know, but they've come up. Well, and it's great. I mean, it's a great testament to you, though, and what you've done because, you know, if you had tons, if you said, yeah, I got 100. You know, 100 copies left here in my house. <laughs> you, know, you, know, reach out. you know, I mean, that's really something that they're, that they're, they go as fast as they do, and, you know, people try to, you know, Snap, snatch them up on eBay, you know, so yeah. that's great. Yep. So, so my art. Yeah, let's talk about your art. I was able to see some of your work online. I know I was looking at the wartime knitting circle yep. photo I have pulled up here. You're doing a variety of things. You don't just have one medium that you work in. So why don't you describe a little bit about kind of where you're at right now with your art and are you working on a project right now? you have anything in the works? Um, well, yeah, I did this project called A History of String, which is an installation that has three embroidered pieces that are shown on their embroidery stands, which is like the stands that you use to make them. Okay. And then a zoetrope, which Kat Mazza and I, who's an artist in the Nintendo book, we collaborated on uh, a performance and installation at the end of 05, for one part of which we conceived of this zoetrope, this cylindrical object that has a certain number of small slits on the sides and a series of still images on the inside. And if you turn the cylindrical object and look through the slits, you see this animation. It's an early, it's a predecessor motion pictures. So it's an early animation device. And so Kat and I came up with the zoetrope as part of our piece, and since then I've been working with it to make uh, embroidered animations that go inside the zoetrope. And oh, wow. So I have a new animation that's part of this installation. And the animation is a film rolling off of the film reel and getting cut. And then inside the zoetrope, if you peer down inside of it, there's a hoop that goes on the bottom of the zoetrope as you're looking in that has this hand-embroidered text that runs in a circle. So you have to move the, the zoetrope slowly as to read this um, circular text that's about the 
history of the dual movie projector and camera. The whole piece is called A History of String. The piece is about um, the different ways that strings have been used to convey a complex meaning, and then there's this other part of it that folds back into string and sewing and the links between filmmaking and sewing. So interesting. Links. Yeah. One, one is that, and this is the text that's embroidered in a circular shape at the bottom of the zoetrope that kind of goes with this animation of someone cutting film. And so the text describes how in the late 1800s, Louis Lumiere, who invented the um, first dual camera and projector, based the device off of the newly popular sewing machine. And the, the, so, the way that a sewing machine advances um, cloth through cloth at a, at, a, at, a, um, at a steady rate where it, it moves it, it moves cloth through and it stops it, so you make a stitch and it moves cloth through and stops it, so you make a stitch. That same mechanism, that mm -hmm. moves, he adapted that, that sprocket mechanism that's used on a sewing machine for his film camera and projector so that the, um, so that the, uh, the a strip of film could move forward brief pauses during which images were either exposed or viewed. So later, <laughs> later, like 30 years later, during the advent of early Hollywood, the first film editors were women who were thought to be good editors because they have experienced sewers and they were like very nimble with their hands. That's one part. And then a third part of the installation is a video that, that goes back to the more content about um, these different it, it's sort of a hard one to explain, but I made it this summer and I'm reworking it um, for a space that's been allotted at the Museum of Arts and Design. They're doing a, a show in November called Crick, Extreme Embroidery. So Very cool. Be, yeah, it's a big group show. It should be really interesting. So that's what I'm working on at the studio now. It's kind of reforming out, reformatting the piece and the different um, objects in it to fit the space well, it sounds like you're staying very busy with your artwork. And it's interesting, too, to, to see how you seem to navigate between all these worlds rather effortlessly. Do you think it's just because you were brought up in a, in a fashion where, you know, everyone just kind of did their thing, you know, their art, and, you know, who cares about what's going on with the local war reenactors, you know? <laughs> we're going to go about our business here making art and, and zines and all that. I mean, that's really, really wonderful that you're doing that. And it seems like you're in the right place, too. New York is definitely the place to be if you want to get involved in these shows and, and meet all the people you've met in the, you know, the art world. Yeah, it can be a harsh place to live sometimes just because it can be, you know, all of the stereotypes about New York, some of them do hold true. You know, it's very loud and dirty and expensive. But there are an incredible number of talented, creative people here who are really good at what they do and really motivated. And that community is really inspiring and sort of like, really an integral part of my life here. So. so you plan to be a New Yorker for the rest of your life? I don't know. My fiancé is not crazy about it, to be honest. He loves the sun. And he, he went to graduate school in San Francisco and um, in Berkeley, actually, and he spent a not living there. He's a filmmaker. He's a documentary filmmaker. And he, he does get a lot of work here, but sometimes he, he, he um, suggests that L.A. or mild weather-wise and a little bit more humid 
So we'll see. I don't know. I want to have a kid or two. I don't know how many, but um, <laughs> sometimes I, I worry about financially how to have a, a stable enough life to protect the child. I don't know. I grew up in a rural environment that I loved. I was really into the creek behind our house and hanging out in the woods. I was really into horseback riding. And I really love the outdoors, and I do miss that sometimes in New York. It's hard to leave New York. It's, I mean, you can go to Pennsylvania or upstate New York. You can, about, you, know, you know, about an hour or two hours away from New York are these incredible, you know, woods and mm-hmm. bodies of water, but it can be hard to well, I think people feel like they're missing something because something's always going on in New York. You know, always going on. That can be the hard thing, like just saying no to some talk or lecture. Or yeah, because every day, all day. Yeah. yeah, it's true. It's true, and you get used to a certain level of stimulation, like intellectual <laughs> right. or visual or conversational, and then you, yeah, it can be hard to sort of reserve time for doing things that are slow and contemplative and quiet. Yeah. But no, no lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like you're in a, you know, you, the thing is you have options. So, you know, if you get to the point where you're like, you know what, I'm ready for, you know, San Francisco, you know. Yeah. I am thinking about teaching. So this book tour that I'm doing includes a lot of lectures at art schools. And I'm excited about that just to see how that goes. Because I just finished my MFA. I just got that Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, it was in writing or in art? It was an art. Art, art. yeah. Although I went to an inter-, inter... Bard has this interdisciplinary MFA program where you meet with people of different disciplines, and three of those disciplines are visual art, but two of them, one is music and one is writing. So I did meet with um, writers and poets uh, for critiques, and that was part of my program. So that was pretty good. And is it an, um, a film concentration, or...? I did do a film video concentration, but it, it is so interdisciplinary that it's not... Yeah, it didn't, it didn't, and there's like no technical. <laughs> it's it's just based on your own studio practice. It's a, it's a low residency program where you go for three consecutive summers, eight weeks each summer, and you produce work in your studio and have meetings with all types of people who come into your studio. And About every six months, I actually look like. up the the information on <laughs> low residency programs. Yeah, I yeah. haven't. Uh, I haven't gotten that out of my system, so yeah. I don't know if I might do yeah. that at some point. It's yeah. intense, I have to say, because what you give up in sort of the year-long immersion and what I see is sort of like infantilization. You know how when you go, you know, when you go to school, it's like you're in school. Well, yeah, and, and you're I with your peers and you you're have... You're with your peers and yeah. you're within the structure of the institution, and it's like not your... It's not like a real life anymore. Right. It's like and suspended reality, you know. It really is. Yeah. So, the, what the low residency has to offer is a shortened version of that where you can have your real regular life during the year and then you go to a low residency program for a short amount of time, but then it feels like camp and it is so intense because it's only, a, you know, two months or something and you, there's so much to pack in that it's like completely, I mean, it's hard to find time to eat. That was my problem. Like, <laughs> oh, when can I eat? So it's intense. No, I, don't, I think people think, or maybe I did before I went. Bard was the only place I applied for my master's because I wanted to stay in New York and I didn't want to go to Columbia because it was too expensive. I had this vision of well, low residency means like less work or something, or like less. <laughs> Wrong. Less residency. Low residency means less residency, but right, fact, right. once you're there, it's so, I mean, it's just 
Well, yeah, because you have to make up for all the time that you're not there. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, you just want to get the most out of it. Well, congratulations on finishing that. And so you're thinking that perhaps uh, becoming an academic might be in your future? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I love, you know, I love publishing. I love editing. I love getting, I love doing events. And I think I would love teaching because I really love sharing resources and giving feedback. It's something that I do. A lot of the emails that I get through KnitMit are people who want me to look at their work and tell me what they think or share ideas for them of where they could show or what they could do next. Or, and I like doing that. So I think teaching might be good for me. But it'll be interesting because I haven't done any teaching at the college level. And I haven't done any teach, art teaching since I was in college doing it. I did it for a couple of summers with junior high and high school kids. So I haven't done any since then. So I think this will be interesting to look for this fall because I'm stopping at Micah and Rosie and uh, SMU in Dallas and a couple of other art schools to see how that interaction goes and sort of test it out. But yeah, I have my master's now, so it is an option for me. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. Academia. And you'll actually be more prepared after this book tour than most budding academics. I've taught journalism at a couple of local schools here in West Michigan, and you know, you step in front of the classroom the very first time with absolutely no, like, I had no formal training in how to be a great teacher, you know, so you just kind of have, you know, the knowledge in your head and, and try to present the material in the best way you can. And I mean, so you're actually going about this in a very wonderful way. You're actually preparing yourself, you know, by testing the waters a bit, you know, so um, I think yeah, you're going to well, be great. Yeah, one thing I worry about with teaching is my, my lack of technical expertise. I mean, I know what I need to know in order to make what I make. You know, usually when you're like an assistant professor, you teach like the upper level studio critiques, but you also teach students one-on-one. Right, like right. Machine techniques or surface design. And, and I have to sort of brush up on some of that because I'm a little bit of a find my way through material kind of artist and crafter. Yeah. I don't Well, I think as long as you're honest with your students about that, yeah. they'll actually probably respect you more than the, the woman down the hall who's trying to pretend like she knows everything. Yeah. You, know? We'll you know, there's a poser on every campus, usually several, you know. So. <laughs> and I don't want to be that poser. So, and you won't because you're, you're honest about what you do. Yeah. Well, now I, I'd like to move on to, um, you know, just your book. I mean, obviously that's the reason that we're, well, one of the reasons we're talking. I've kind of had you on my hope to talk to someday list for a while, actually. But yeah, Knit Knit, Profiles and Projects from Knitting's New Wave is a book that's just out and it's really just wonderful because it's one of those books that you can actually have out. I can see people who aren't even as hardcore into art and craft as we are taking an interest in this because the stories I think are so interesting. The reasons like why people are doing what they're doing. I guess basically I felt like I got a chance to live vicariously through you because you went and you stayed with these people. You visited them where they live and work and dined with them and just chatted about their lives and it sounds like some of the people you knew before you did the book through Knit Knit. And, but why don't you tell me just, you know, wherever you want to start, just tell me about this experience. But actually, why don't we start with how did the book come to pass? I mean, did you um, send a proposal out or did yeah, someone... Yeah, I did in 2004, in the winter of 2004, I did a residency at the McDowell Colony, which is an artist. It was actually the first artist residency program ever in the U.S. hundred years old this year. Celebrating their 100-year anniversary, and it's this wonderful place where you, once you apply and are accepted, you go and you stay in um, a cabin. <laughs> they have 
several, I think a couple hundred acres in New Hampshire of land, and they have like in between, I think around 25 cabins spread out over this land. No cabin has a view of another, and they're all different styles, and you just make your work all day. Wow. They cook for you, that they bring you lunch in a picnic basket that they leave in the front of your door so it's not Wow. I know. It's pretty cushy. It's just an incredibly special place. And I was there making art and napping and, you know, doing my thing at McDowell, which includes a lot of catching up on rest. When I, I've gone there twice, and I always end up sleeping like nine hours a day, and then also taking a nap at some point. In the, middle of the, day. <laughs> the only place I nap ever. I am not a napper otherwise. And I had this idea. I started, it was a place where I could really think instead of I get so caught up in day-to-day and week-to-week goals and activities that McDowell is so, I had so much time to think about time and to think about what I wanted to do. And I could envision bigger projects that would take more than, you know, the months that it takes to make or, like, three weeks it would take to complete a certain art project. And I thought, oh, well, I want to do a book. It's time. I'm ready. I really want to do a minute book. And I thought, I want to do a feature film. But it's like, well, I'm going to start writing out these two projects. So I ended up, while I was there, writing a book proposal. And I think it was February or March of 2005, I started talking to friends about this book proposal. And I didn't really know what a book proposal was, but I put it together in a way, like sort of an intuitive way, mm-hmm. and gathered all the knit press and some examples of knit and said to my friends, you know, how do I, what's like the next step here? And a friend of mine, Sarah Grady, who's a close friend and who had worked on the TV show Nitty Gritty, mm-hmm. said, well, we have this author and book editor on the show, Melanie Salick. I think you should send your proposal to her. She was, uh, Sarah just couldn't say enough nice things about her. And so I went to the bookstore and I looked at Melanie's books, the books that come out through her imprint. And they're so beautiful. And they are. I really had so much respect for them. And then I found her book and read her book. And so I sent my proposal to her. I ended up sending it to her and I think two other editors. So I did a similar thing where I just sort of went and looked at books that I really loved and saw who published them and looked at some of the other titles that they published and thought, well, could this be the right place for a book? And I was really torn between would it be an art book or would it be a craft book? So I did send it to Melanie and another kind of craft book editor, and then I sent it to an editor who works for an art book publisher. Mm-hmm. So, and I heard back from Melanie right away, and so I went up to have a meeting with her, and I had sort of proposed like a knit compilation book, compiling, you know, all of the content from the sold-out issues and then adding new content, and through talking with her, we conceptualized the book that is out now, which is really, I think in many ways, based on Melanie's epic. Mm-hmm. It's like um, an updated version. Yeah, Knitting yeah. in America, mm-hmm. which she wrote and conceived, which is Profiles of Knitters in America. And so she, I really have her to thank for that focus. Knit was never just about knitting. It was always about like anything that could be called handcraft. And I was really glad to focus in on one medium, actually. I think that served me as an artist and a writer. And just in terms of doing a big project like this, to have that kind of focus, I think, served it really well. So together we conceived of this project, and then it just went from there. By August 2005, I think I 
signed the contract and really started working September, October, gathering the list of people I wanted to work with. And I had, you know, Molly and I agreed it should be, you know, between 25 and 30 people. And I already knew going into the project that I really wanted to work with Kiriko Shirobayashi, who was a friend I befriended during an art residency in upstate New York in 2001, a fine art photographer. And she also does some fashion and sort of more commercial work as well. And she just has a really, I just love her photographs. She has a way of capturing these really special, ethereal, sensitive moments. I mean, she just has such an incredible work ethic and a wonderful personality. She's wonderful to work with. And she's a friend. And so I knew I wanted to work with her. In, I guess it was the fall of 05, I started making a list of the people I knew already I wanted to work with. These were people I'd come to know through fitness and also people whose work I admired for a long time mm -hmm. um, but never met. And then I started doing a lot of research, you know, just looking at all the craft magazines that were out, tons of blogs. Oh, my goodness. I hadn't, I'd done a little bit of blog reading before, but this time, I think I've, I mean, I'm sure there's new ones out now, but I think... I have read almost in almost every blog that, that was knitting related that was out in the winter of '05. I looked at. I mean, I clicked it. I followed every link on every blog. I mean, I was, I was quite thorough, and that's how I came across Annabelle, who's in the book, who has become a prominent blogger and was really on the rise when I first came to find her blog, Ameliorate. And that was the winter of '05. Even by the time. In 06, we got the English photographer. I mean, she was, I think she's like doubled in hits. She's just become so popular, um, deservedly so. So I also went to church craft meetings. I met with gallery owners, you know, and then I just got a lot of personal recommendations. And I put a call on my website and sent out a bunch of emails saying I'm looking for knitters to profile on my book. So I got a lot of submissions too. And then it really just whittled down to the people who were able to participate. There were one or two people I really wanted to put in the book who just couldn't do it for different reasons. And then it was kind of a matter of tweaking the travel photography schedule and budget to see how we could travel geographically. And Kirgo and I, it was very similar, actually, I think, to Melanie's tour when she went with her photographer, Chris Hartlove, where it was just the two of them, and they went to people's houses, and ended up staying in their you know, guest rooms or on their couches and taking pictures of them and interviewing them and then moving on. And that was very much the process that Kiriko and I underwent. It wasn't back-to-back -back traveling. We came back to New York in between, and there were one or two people who we photographed in New York mm -hmm. when they came through who, who lived elsewhere, like Liz Collins came to New York to do a show and photographed her. She lives in Providence. We photographed so did you actually go to Providence at any point then? We did. Yeah. We did. We, we photographed Dave Cole in his studio, and we also photographed Liz Collins' model in Liz's apartment in Providence. So we did end up going there. So we, we um, it was, it was quite a lot to manage just booking this travel. Well, yeah, because I mean, you were in London. Uh, yeah, we Denmark, were in London. We were in Paris for a night. Toronto, just a uh, night, just one night in Paris. One night in Paris, it was amazing. It was so incredible because we flew from London, just got there early in the morning. We went straight to Risto Dabolowski's apartment and did all the photography with him and the interview and had a couple of meals. And then that night, you know, Kiriko 
and I stayed in this hotel, and she went out with a friend who just happened to be in Paris, and I went out with some friends who happened to be in Paris, and then the next morning, we tried to find, <laughs> Kiriko was so upset, because we tried to find some, like, she was like, Paris, I just want coffee, a baguette, and some brie, and then we'll get on the plane, and I was like, no problem, and she ended up with horrible instant coffee, and we had to go to a grocery store, and the brie was really good, it was just some really, you know, like, um, pedestrian grocery store, it's nothing fancy, we just, like, got some bread and brie from the store, and then, like, got in the car to head to the airport, but she's still bitterly disappointed about that Parisian instant coffee. Uh. <laughs> so we were just there for a night, and we went actually went to Glasgow just for a day. We didn't even spend the night. So we flew from London to Glasgow to photograph and meet with Mandy Mascott. And again, we got there really early, and we left at night back to London. Now, so, was that hard for you? Because when you're traveling like that, you're so jet-lagged, and you're trying to do an interview and be really engaged. I mean, how yeah. do you keep yourself awake to do well, this? Well, I just, just had the rush of being yeah, on the... Yeah, the rush. And it's yeah. like, you know, Paris in May is amazing. So even if you're just there for a day, you know, we were, I mean, and all of these people are so fun. You know, Risto was so funny. He had his friend over, his other friend and co-workers, the woman taking the photograph. I mean, everyone who's pictured in the book is, like, the friend of one of the designers, one of the knitters in the book. It's all very, like, homegrown. So it was fun because you're not, you know, there's some photo shoots where you have a lot of assistants and production people and, you know, and there's all these, like, strangers who are just hired for the day to come together and do some shoot, and then they disperse. And this wasn't like that. You know, Kiriko and I are friends. We made good travel companions, and it was fun to travel with her. And then also we would just meet all of these new people who, you know, would just, like, be so excited about having us there and would want to take us to their favorite cafe or, you know, make lunch for us or involve their friends in the shoot because that made it fun for them. Yeah. So, you know, like, the more personal this kind of work is, I think the more fun it is because people really invest some piece of themselves in it. You know? mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, and then if their friends are around, it's like it's fun for everybody. Well, then you also get, I think, a clearer picture, too, of the person, you know, and who they are. I mean, because you can see kind of the people they hang around with and it kind yeah. of their character is more of a oh, yeah. fully so, realized thing. <laughs> yeah, we would often leave wondering, you know, like, was that someone's boyfriend or was that their friend? We photographed Mandy, and we didn't want to ask her, but we were taking pictures of her, and she was like, her tummy looks a little big. Do you think she's pregnant? And I was like, I don't know. I don't want to ask. And then, you know, I got an email later. Pregnant. She said she was pregnant. So <laughs> you're like, what a relief. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is so, funny. Yeah, and like with Annie Modisette, she gave us this wonderful tea. She made this whole tea spread. It was very proper spread with scones and this wonderful teapot, like a ceramic, or no, I think it was like a porcelain teapot, and we had like porcelain cups and saucers, and she brought that out. Her, she was a wonderful dog, um, Atticus, by the standard poodle, so smart, and so she was prancing around, and you know, it was fun. You can just tell that you had fun, because the writing, I mean, I love the, the way you really captured people's, um, you know essence in the in each piece that you wrote and um i mean i love this book like i love melanie's book i remember when that came out um yeah i mean because i i think one of the things that she did so well is you know when you, you go and you kind of just make yourself part of the scene you know and kind of be transparent and let the story come through and you did that and 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 it's a special bonus as if people aren't intrigued enough by hearing about the interesting lives of all these wonderfully creative people 
um, each one of them supplied a project, which yeah. is another thing that is like uh, Knitting in America. Um, and how does that work? The people, um, did you have to, out of your budget, I mean, how does, I, I don't know a whole lot about how this works, but do yeah. these people just donate the pattern or do you have to pay each designer for patterns? Yeah, or? no, essentially they did. We had, I got paid a fee for writing and then we had a photography fee, um, which covered everything having to do with photography. So Kiriko's fee came out of that, the budget to buy. We shot medium format slides of all of those people and a lot of the other imagery that you see in the book, like mm -hmm. of Debbie Moog's um, knitted teacups and of her knitted coracle, Kiriko took those. The medium format slides um, are actually technically really challenging to shoot. They have a really low margin of error, like with medium format negatives, I think you can go over under two stops and be okay, but that's not the same case as the slide film. But anyway, we did shoot film, so that obviously is more expensive than doing digital because you have to pay for the film and for it, it to get you know, printed. So mm -hmm. that was part of the photo budget. We didn't have any money to give to people to do patterns, so they wrote them um, some most of the patterns were written for the book. A couple of them, like Lisa's, uh, Lisa's geodesic hat, was made for a knit-knit event that I did in 2004 at a geodesic dome. And so she, in honor of the event, created a knitted hat in the shape of the dome. So that was a nice tie-in mm -hmm. you know, between the book and the magazine. And um, Freddie Robbins' banner, I'm so angry with the piece that she's done before. Barrel saying hit bit, of course, is something that's just one of many kinds of hit bits that she makes. Um, but a lot of them, like Liz Collins' stretchy tank top or dress, she really wanted to use the book as a way to come up with a new project. And she sort of, she'd been thinking a lot about recycling and um, knitting and wanted to do, had wanted an excuse to do a piece that utilized um, recycled clothing to make into a new garment. So, and then there was Dave Cole's fiber knit, um, fiberglass teddy bear, yeah. which was a piece he had made a couple of years before, but he never wrote down the pattern. Right, right. And so, um, he, I really had to beg him to write that pattern because he's, um, he has ADD, which I mentioned in my profile, and it can be really hard for him to sit down and concentrate and write out a pattern like this. And also, it's a really, it's not like any other kind of knitting pattern. Well, no, so you're no. talking about, I mean, these instructions are so, you know, about preparing for clothing. I mean, it starts step one, unroll insulation. Right, right exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was like, I was like, this is, this completely rocks. Because although I have to say, I mean, I admire his fiberglass teddy bear. I will never make this pattern, but I have to say I thoroughly enjoy reading it, though. I might try to make something like this out of something, maybe a little smaller and out of something besides fiberglass. But Yeah, well, it's so funny because we have this wonderful pattern editor, Sue McCain. I'm so grateful that she worked on this book because here she was. She got 27 different patterns, 27 different people for one book that she had to edit and test. And, you know, there were people in the book who had never written an any pattern or like Dave Cole or um, Jim Drain. You know, some of these artists that I work with, they're, they're not like Teva Durham or Nora Gone. They don't do this for a living. Right. You know? And there is, as we all know, there is 
language, there's technique, there's a specific form that these patterns take, and especially the fashion designers, actually, like Wen Lan Chia and Risto Bimbalowski. Risto just sent me a drawing, you know? He was like, this is what I use with my, you know, hand knitter from Macedonia. This is how we make the garments. And I was like, Risto, that's not, <laughs> not going to work here. So, I mean, poor Sue, who got all of these patterns, you know, which were, had various levels of competency and clear instructions. She had to, there was a lot of back and forth between Sue and I and the knitters to try to figure out, you know, what exactly was missing from the pattern to help her get it up to snuff. And, but it, strangely and very interestingly, I, you know, after I begged Dave to write this pattern and he somehow was able to convince him to do it, Sue told me that his was the best one of anyone's pattern. Interesting. In the book, which I just think is so fascinating. So. And it's the only one that begins with unroll insulation. <laughs> I know. I remember. <laughs> I would just get those weirdest emails from Sue. She would be like, Sabrina, where do people buy insulation? We need to put that in the pattern, you know? Uh, Things like that. I'd be like, where do people buy that's why this book is like no other knitting book of its kind. Knitting in America had very traditional patterns. There was no breast care, cancer awareness Fitbit and right. uh, fiberglass bears and I mean, and I'm so angry banner, which I absolutely love because yeah. I have my moments, and I think it might not be bad to uh, cast on <laughs> cast on this project and in particular maddening moments. Um, yeah, decide Actually, to. I heard I heard about an Inuit. This this pattern made me think of this Inuit custom that someone art school told me about that when in that community when someone's angry at someone or with something they they take a stick and they walk away from the community and they walk as far as they go until their anger subsides and when their anger's out they put a, that stick in the ground and then they walk back to the community and that length between the community and the stick represents the length of their anger and I hmm. think that I think that Freddie mentions this in her pattern that I don't know how explicitly, but, you know, I wonder about people making the pattern, like, if they start it when they're angry, can their anger, like, take them to the end of the process? Yeah, she does say something like, I'm so angry can be in the collection of anyone who can maintain their anger long enough to knit it. <laughs> right, exactly. So, yeah, I wonder about that. So, how far would you get in? Would you get to the M? Well, the thing that's so funny about it is that it's it's one of those projects that I think would actually be quite funny to knit because yeah. it's, like, draped across a couch back in the photo. And when you see it, you can't help but laugh because it's like, it's hand-knit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, well, how angry is that, really, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> and it's also very lovely. I like the design. It is. It. It's beautiful. I think when things make me mad, I try to figure out a way to use that to some positive end, you know? Yeah. Uh, so if you can scream beauty with an I'm so angry knitted banner, yeah. more power to you, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> well, even though, I mean, I don't, I know that the, the book patterns like Dave Cole's fiberglass teddy bear or Farrell's Fitbit um, or Althea Murbach's tiny I mean those I, are remarkable they're I remarkable and mini sweater earrings that they're she... so tiny they're so tiny they're, I mean the stuff that she makes is so fantastic and fantastical even and I could never never do that pattern but I know there are a handful of projects in there that are extraordinarily challenging conceptually or technically, but I do think that the book has a lot of garments and objects in it that are really makeable. 
I mean, some of them are quite easy. Everything in here is completely doable. And one of the things that's so wonderful about it is that it's not going to be like, you know, you pick up the latest knitting magazine. And, and I think the expectation sometimes that people have is there's going to be a bunch of sweaters in there. You know, about, I mean, some mittens, you know, we're getting into the colder weather. There's going to be yeah. some. But this, and this is really beautiful in, in the sense that everything from a slip cover for an egg chair to garments you can wear, you know, because there are some, um, a sweatshirt kimono. I mean, these yeah. are just things that are going to hopefully inspire people who pick it up. Not only the stories of the people's lives, but to look at knitting in a different way. A lot of times people feel like they have to make like the traditional scarves and hats and blankets and sweaters. And to see these talented people making things that, you know, kind of go outside the box a little bit is, is wonderful. I love the knitted boxing gloves. That's fabulous, you know. I mean, everything about the projects just it's really, really fun, you know, and yeah. and the designers are extremely talented. You know, that's really incredible to see. I mean, I love the knitted teacups that um Debbie knew made. The photography is beautiful. Like I said, this is one of those books I like to just pull off my shelf or leave out and just page through it and look at the pictures and it's cool because you don't have to read it cover to cover all in one yeah. sitting. I love yeah. the fact that you can pick it up at any point, flip it open and say, you know, today I'm going to read Mandy McIntosh, and there you go. It's a short profile, and you can put it down, go about your business, and come back to it, and it's just fantastic. So how does it feel to have this out now and have people be able to see the fruits of your labor? I'm so relieved that it's out. You don't even know. I'm so <laughs> glad it's out because it's been this it was a long project. It was a lot of work. I was also, you know, in addition to collaborating with Melanie to conceive of a project, I also collaborated with her in the writing, you know, and that she was the editor, and I was also really lucky and grateful to have Betty Christensen also as an editor of my text, she's such a great writer, I love knitting for peace. Yeah, she's and fantastic. She's so gentle, and we have a men person who converses over the phone, she's sweet as a reassuring voice, because I had a lot of anxiety about my writing, because I, I just really... I don't have a journalism degree, and I don't have a lot of experience um, as a writer. And I, it was, a bit, in a way, very presumptuous of me, I think, to say, well, I can write a book, no problem. And then when you know, the time came to actually sit down to do it, I was often quite daunted or, you know, just intimidated. And I'm a bit of a perfectionist, so that was one thing I had to learn to get rid of in the process. But So I also collaborated, in addition to collaborating with, you know, Melanie and Betty and then with Sue getting everything she needed and communicating with her about how her progress was going. And then, you know, with Kirk on the photography, and then Kevin O'Neill, the designer, had done Knit Knit 4 and 5, and I had full confidence and like in, of his talent and skill, he, but he had never done a book before. Mm -hmm. So we went through several passes of the book where he and Melanie and I were really trying to figure out, well, how can we put... It's quite a challenge to keep the energy of knit knit as an idea and as a zine in the book and also to maintain respect and for the reader, you know, make creating something legible that's like pleasing to look at but also because people are going to be working on these projects to create something that, you know, your eye can go back to again and again and that is very clear to read. Mm -hmm. But then to really make sure that the 27 different aesthetics of each knitter in the book came through but still came together as a whole. That was quite a challenge. So it was a big project, and I loved working with all of those people I got to work with. But for a while, I felt like, you know, there were maybe five people in the world, these people I was working with on the book, that really knew intimately what the hell I was doing. And for everybody else, it was like, I'm not doing 
my art right now because I'm working on this book, and I'm you know, not doing this right now because I'm working on my book, and I'm not going out right now because I'm working on my book. Right, right. I can't hang out with you and they're not I'm seeing, on my book. And they're not seeing any of this book. No. They're, they're just I mean, like, is she really up, doing this, you know? Right, and it comes up so much later that it's just such a wonderful thing to have all of this effort out in a physical form for doing out in the world. And feedback is still new, but it's been really exciting to hear what people have to say about it. And so far, it seems like what I wanted, which is for it to be an art and craft crossover book, is happening. I did go into Barnes & Noble last week, and I saw it there, and that was very exciting. And I took a picture with my camera phone, um, the phone on my camera. But then I moved the book from the craft section to the art section. And <laughs> I left, and then I was like, oh, God, I'm not going to be able to find it now. That's probably really stupid, but I wish it could be <laughs> in the art book section and the craft book section. Oh, I love that. I love that. I know if I'm I'm ever blessed to actually get that off my goal list and, and write my book, I'm going to be doing silly things like moving the books <laughs> around and getting my picture taken with the book. I mean, I do ridiculous stuff like that. If someone says they've heard of my show yeah. <laughs> and they're outside my family, I'll be like, right. oh, can I like can I get a picture with you? And most times, <laughs> and most times, if somebody comes up and says, oh, I saw you on TV or I saw you do this, the person receiving that compliment or that comment doesn't say, can I take a picture with you? It's usually the one saying, hey, I know your work. Can I get a picture with you? I, on the other hand, I'm dorky enough that I'm like, oh, what's your name? Can I take your picture with you? Like, it's so like, like I need that proof. Like, this really happened to me. So when I tell someone, like a friend, I can say, yeah, someone heard of my show and this is the person. <laughs> that is really funny. It's, it's so ridiculous. Instead of, instead of being a fan of someone I'm else. I'm a fan of the fans. You're a fan of the fans, so you're creating a, a, a collection. Fans. Yeah, it's like it's ridiculous. It's kind of, I kind of <laughs> have stopped doing that a little because it seemed like I was kind of scaring people a little bit because it's kind of a strange response. But I kind of I mean I'm just Jen, you know. I'm not, you know. I just it just cracks me up though. I'm always amazed when <laughs> people have heard my. Sh- I'm like wow. So so you're doing pretty good. Just moving books around at Barnes and Noble, um, <laughs> you know, isn't too bad. You know, if you now if you ask to get your picture taken with like the nearest customer, like you see my book and I see my book, so it must really be here, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful so I mean so you, you've done this thing I mean, this is a huge project and yes. it's just I mean you're only two weeks out I mean do you have another book in the works though I mean what's no, next no, no. Take I have a vacation. book tour in the work I sort of scheduled this whole book tour for myself I think I'm going to like 13 cities wow. so that's what I'm doing next I had a book launch party last week at um, a gallery in New York called Green Off Polly with Jim Drain who's one of the artists in the book he had a, a solo exhibition on view so we had the book party there, and that was wonderful. That felt like a wedding because there were all these people who worked on the book, and like ten of the knitters, including Isabel Berlund, who's based in Copenhagen. Wow. And Lisa Ann Auerbach, who's based in Los Angeles, and David Gent, who's based in Missouri, and Nitta, you know, four of the Nittas came, are based in Texas. So they were all there together, which is amazing. They flew in for the event. And then, you know, my, my parents came, and commitment fans I've never met, and friends who, a bunch of my friends who are artists who don't knit or don't really have much interest in it necessarily came. So that was really fun. And then I'll do a signing at Pearl in Soho this Saturday. And then I start in October a tour where I'm going to different places on the East Coast, going to Texas, a few cities in Texas. I'll go to Los Angeles, San Francisco, London. So that'll be fun. And I think what's going to be great about that is it's a mix of giving lectures at these art schools, as I mentioned, but also signings at yarn stores, mm-hmm. a couple of stops at museums, and also signings and events at a couple of art bookstores. 
going to be an interesting mix of people as I travel around, and I'm really excited about that to sort of go from one location to another and then also be involved with different communities of makers or people who are interested in, in making for different reasons. So that's what I have coming up next, and um, I'm really excited about it. So you're going to bring some knitting on the way? Um, maybe. I have some more embroidering to do for this art piece, so I might, if not for the October date, be embroidering. I'm actually crocheting right now, <laughs> so <laughs> I um, might bring some crocheting with me. What are you working on? I'm working on, I did this project, it's all art stuff, I'm not doing any gifts crafting right now. I did this project called Wartime Knitting Circle that you mentioned mm -hmm. and read about at the Museum of Arts and Design. It was for the show they had called Radical Laces the first knitting that was open from January to June of this year. And the project involves different communities of people and different knitters coming together to work on wartime related knitting projects. And so there were four different patterns available for people to work on at the museum, and some people ended up finishing some of those patterns and sending me their objects, and a lot of things were completed there. When the show was finished, I took all the completed items and I sent them away to the different organizations that were accepting them, like helmet liners, which was sent to soldiers in Iraq, or, mm -hmm. and so on, and I ended up with a lot of squares. That was, I wanted to have a basic, you know, like an easy knit as available for people and for squares that, you know, pretty much, I guess, the easiest thing to knit. True. So I end up with tons of squares. Some of them are incredibly wonky because another part of the project <laughs> was that people didn't have to finish something. They could do a row or two and then leave. And so I ended up with these weird rectangles or like more like parallelograms that a bunch <laughs> of different people worked on. So I felted a bunch of those and cut them up. And now I'm combining. I made a few blankets already, but I still have a bunch of squares left and crocheting with a couple blankets right now to send to this organization that sends them to soldiers who are recovering in a military hospital in Germany. Oh, wow. So that's what I've been doing. Yeah. yeah. And that's a good, that's a really good project because it's very simple. I can take it anywhere. You know? And also, I just like that activity of, you know, it's like puzzle pieces, all these different squares that are different colors and they're different sizes and trying to Well, and it's really interesting, too, because so many hands have been involved. Yeah. That's really the wonderful part about it, too. Yeah. Some of them are so even and meticulous, and some are, like, really erotic. And yeah. Well, it sounds like you are continuing to just find one more creative thing after another to involve yourself in. So that's really, that's wonderful. And uh, it sounds like you're going to have quite an experience now with part two of this book project where you get to uh, now see how happy it makes people. So that's that's really got to be fun. And is it strange to be at a table signing autographs, or did you do that with your art publication as no, well? No, I never did that. We had one book signing where Elise Allen did the covers for Knit Knit 7, these amazing knitted and studded shields that she made. She's an incredible shield designer. And she signed those covers. But um, I hadn't done any book signing until last week, and it was so intimidating, you know, to... I wanted to write something special to each person, you know, and then uh, there are people, there you get a mix of people, or I guess in your hometown, you get a mix of people you don't know. Right, like right. You know, I've 
met a long lost cousin who came to the book signing. Right, said, right. What do I write to you? And then to friends and a former boss of mine came. And so. And then those war reenactors, you know, when he. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> I appreciate you, though I don't understand your love of war reenactment. Yeah. Uh, enjoy the book. <laughs> I think I'll just go with happy minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how do, how do you decide what to write? Well, okay. Or do you have, have like your sig- do you have your like signature thing? So my new technique is to ask people to spell their name, even if it's something like John or Sarah. Or oh yeah, that's a trick. Infinite variation. Oh yeah. Even mm-hmm. if it's someone I know, I ask spell their names like, just to make sure because you're no you're writing this in permanent and with a sharp <laughs> right you don't want to have a big cross, black mark where you crossed it out you right know? i know you don't want that you don't want that so i add, and then you know after they say their name they spell it i try to add i mean sometimes sometimes something will come right away and if it's someone i know either it comes right away or i have to give it a minute or two if it's not someone i know then i try to engage with them about the book you know like what they think of it or what excites them about it. A friend of mine who runs an art gallery was like, I know what I want you to write. And I said, what? She said, I want you to write it seven times and then sign 2007. And I was like, great. That sounds perfect. I'll do that. <laughs> Sometimes people have a really particular idea uh, of what they want you to write. And that probably makes it a little bit easier, unless it's something ridiculous that you don't want to sign your name to. Have you had yeah, that yet? Yeah, who's going to do I don't know. I mean, you'd hope. I, I you'd hope That's that knitters. Probably going to happen on Saturday. Yeah, right. Someone's going to show up now, and they're going to be like, "Yeah, you know, write some ridiculous thing." Right. Yeah, I love you forever. <laughs> <laughs> I and will you'd, always love you. And you'd be like, "Okay, <laughs> next." <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I really have enjoyed speaking with you. I don't know if there's anything that. I didn't ask you that you really have a burning desire to share with all of us because I, I definitely don't want to cut you off. At first I thought, I'm like, oh my gosh, she hung up. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. <laughs> After all this time, I've now offended her. My Austrian grandmother, who's 96, is like that. She does that. She just, she's done with the conversation. That's it. She just hangs right up. She's done, you know. She doesn't want to waste money. Is that what she has to say? It's over. But no, um, I was just thinking... Some of the people are already on my list of people I want to interview, but like pretty much I could interview everybody in your book. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to totally recreate what you've already done. <laughs> but, but well, thanks again. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Thanks to Sabrina for sharing the story of Knit Knit. And this week's project um, I'm very excited about, and a very special thanks to Lisa for sharing her body count mitten pattern. This pattern can be interpreted a couple different ways. Um, it can either be interpreted as a protest or a memorial, depending on the mindset of the creator. Worked into the design is a number of American soldiers killed during the time the mittens are made. So it, at the very least, will make knitters think about what's going on a world away while we're home knitting. So thank you, Lisa, for letting me post that project. You can find it at craftsanity.com. You can either click on the tab at the top on the projects page or follow the link in the write-up on the blog about this episode. Also, very big thank yous go out to Sarah in Elgin, Illinois, Jennifer in Portland, Maine, Dorothy in Hacienda Heights, California, Catherine in Powell, Ohio, 
Thanks to all you ladies for your support of the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I'm still humbled and amazed, really, that people from all over the place that I can't see listen to this show and feel that it's worth throwing a little bit of money at. I really do appreciate that. Okay, and now the moment many of you have been waiting for. We finally have a winner of Amanda Blake Soul's much-anticipated and totally fantastic book. And I know you're thinking, geez, it hasn't been published yet. How does Jennifer know it's fantastic? I actually got to read an electronic copy, and I really enjoyed it. So I bet you folks at home are going to like it too. And I'm very, very happy to be able to give away a book. You guys set a record here. I've had the most entries ever. Also the most downloads. Way to go, Amanda. You rock. And our very popular woman. So Amy in West Roxbury, Massachusetts, congratulations. You edged out all the competition in this random drawing for a copy of Amanda's book. Her book is called The Creative Family, How to Encourage Imagination and Nurture Family Connection. And that will be shipped out to you, Amy, as soon as it's released. Thank you to Shambhala Publications for participating in this book giveaway. I really appreciate that. Okay, moving on to this week's contest. Uh, here's your chance to win Knit Knit. Sabrina likes to make art in a variety of mediums. Post a comment about your favorite medium or mediums by the entry about this podcast on craftsanity.com. And let's get some kind of dialogue going. What do you like to work with? Do you specialize in one art or craft form, or do you like to dabble in multiple things? Did Sabrina say anything that struck a chord with you? Answer any or all of these questions and copy your post into an email to jennifer at craftsanity.com and I'll get you into the random drawing. Please include your mailing address so I know where to send the book if you win. Uh, I don't share these addresses or your personal information with anyone. This is strictly for the purposes of the contest. Make sure you don't post it. I would never recommend that someone post their home address. So just copy your post into an email and include in that email only your mailing address and I can get you into the drawing. Okay, I think that's it for this episode. Please stick around after the music plays if you want to hear about my crafty work project that I have going. Pretty excited about this, and I actually could use your support on it. And uh, don't forget to craft sanity, my friends. It works for me. Thanks for listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast with Jennifer Ackerman Haywood. Visit CraftSanity.com for more information about today's guest and links to subscribing to the podcast. Want to support the show? Follow the link to vote for Craft Sanity on Podcast Alley once a month. You can also make a donation or buy goods at the Craft Sanity store. Have a suggestion for a future guest or have other feedback? Email jennifer at craftsanity.com. Thanks again for listening to Craft Sanity. Okay, so after nearly a decade as a print journalist, working for the same newspaper, the Grand Rapids Press here in West Michigan, a major craft window has finally opened to me. See, I already tried the door that slammed shut, so now I'm on, I've moved on to windows. And I got one pried open just a little bit, and I'm actually in the process of like crawling through it right now. And what I'm going to be doing is writing a craft blog called Running with Needles for my newspaper. The Grand Rapids Press is also going to be running a weekly craft column by yours truly on Sundays. And right now we're kind of in an experimental phase where I'm going to be running this as kind of a regular series. Um, so it's not cemented yet. It's going to depend on the, how popular it is. So here's the good news for all the curious Craft Sanity listeners. All these craft-related articles will be available online for you to check out, and I'll be posting links at craftsanity.com so you can check out what I'm doing. It's taken me a very long time to convince my editors that adding a craft column and blog is a good idea. 
So I'd really appreciate your support. So if you could, you know, follow the link from craftsanity.com to my newspaper blog and help me stir up a little traffic, I'd love to prove to my editors that there really is a demand for craft-related content. And I realize that I can't do that alone. It's going to take support. And I'm going to reach out to all you folks who listen to this show because I know most of you aren't in West Michigan. Heck, people in West Michigan, most people have no idea that I do this. <laughs> so um, that might change as I uh, gain a little bit of exposure through my craft column and uh, blog here in West Michigan. But I also want to keep you guys in the loop because you're the ones who kind of support my craft endeavors by just tuning in, sending me email, and you know, encouraging me to keep doing this. I once again also want to take a moment to just tell you that I appreciate the fact that you listen to the show and send me such wonderful emails because I really have been able to connect with many of you and it's been such a rewarding experience that really no amount of money or riches or even tons and tons of yarn can't really match that connection and that feeling of just you know just being able to relate to kindred spirits around the globe that's really fantastic so I, that's what's going to keep me podcasting, and um, hopefully I'm going to settle into a pattern soon where I'll be able to get these shows kicked out on a more regular basis. Monday, you'll be able to download the instructions I wrote for five simple children's Halloween costumes, including a bat, mummy, butterfly, flower, and ladybug. And these instructions, for many of you crafty types, these instructions are going to be extremely basic. It was pretty crazy. I wrote them basically all in a day. I think within three days I had made all the costumes and written instructions because in the newspaper business we don't have time to, you know, you can't write something, take two weeks. It's like yesterday. You have to have it done. Feel free to check out the PDF downloads. And for any of you sewers out there that want to critique how I did writing these patterns, feel free to send me email feedback if you have suggestions. I'm definitely receptive to that and realize that there's always room for improvement. My column is going to be launching on Sunday, and in that I'll be featuring a West Michigan artist or crafter each week and give readers a free project related to what that person does to try at home. And every now and then I do plan to profile artists from outside our circulation area, so some of you may qualify as well. The key is I want to always have a project to let readers try, kind of like Craft Sanity. I always like to give people projects to try at home because I know that's really something I like. Anyway, if you're listening from a craft room or art studio in Michigan, please feel free to contact me and tell me what you do, and I'll see if I can work you into my, my column. I just really can't even believe that I'm going to get to write about crafts for my job. I mean, I mean that's not going to be my whole job, just a little sliver of my job, but still, it's fun, I think. It's going to be fun. <laughs> oh, I hope it's going to be fun. I've been looking forward to this for so many years. It's going to stink if it's not fun, but I'm going to go into this thinking it's going to be loads of fun. So, okay, moving on very quickly um, to the marathon training update. I experienced a bit of a setback recently. I had a couple good races. Uh, I did a 10-mile race, and then I did. Uh, I was able to place third in my age group and run um, a pretty decent time. And then I ran a 5K and actually won my age group. But I'm having problems where every time I run uh, these races, I end up my, my Achilles is very tight on the right my right Achilles, and I'm having some trouble. However, um, I got myself into physical therapy and. We're working on that, doing some stretching and just trying to get my body to function the way it's supposed to. I'm not on the injured list yet and hope to keep myself off, so I'm doing a lot of swimming. I was a swimmer in high school. That really was my main sport, so I, um, you know, I'm hoping to, that that's going to be enough to maintain my endurance. Uh, did a little 
five mile run today and it felt it felt every step but you know I, I mean nothing that would slow me down too much but um, I have a feeling that if I did that for 26 miles you know I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna feel that so um, I'm gonna try and keep my endurance up but I'm gonna pound the pavement not as much as I had planned so I'm gonna veer from my training schedule a little bit and do some more intense workouts in the pool and maybe do some boxing some things are going to be exhausting and car- great cardio workouts, um, but will save my my foot because I need to be able to have that thing as healed as possible for this big race. It's a little frustrating to deal with this, but I'm still in the game and feeling confident that I'm going to be able to run my first marathon as scheduled on October 28th. So wish me luck because I just might need it. <laughs> so, okay, I'm gonna, I need to get some sleep now. So um, I'll be back soon with another episode of Craft Sanity. In the meantime... Craft sanity, my friends, it works for me.